Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program and well start health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a delicious and dynamic life. I want to introduce this episode with a thought experiment. Let's say you walk into a restaurant near the Stanford University campus and you want to encourage the patrons waiting online to order a meatless option for lunch, and you can tell them one fact. What would it be, and how would you say it? All right, to save us some time, I'll give you two options. Which one do you think will work better? Option A, some people limit how much meat they eat. This is true both nationally and here at Stanford. Specifically, recent research has shown that 30% of Americans make an effort to limit their meat consumption. That means that 3 in 10 people eat less meat than they otherwise would. Alright, so around all the fluff there, the fact is 30% of Americans make an effort to limit their meat consumption. Got that? Okay, here's option B. Some people limit how much meat they eat. This is true both nationally and here at Stanford. Specifically, recent research has shown that 30% of Americans have started to make an effort to limit their meat consumption. This means that 3 in 10 people have changed their behavior and have begun to eat less meat than they otherwise would. So what do you think? Option A or option B? I'll give you the two key nuggets of each one. 30% of Americans make an effort to limit their meat consumption. That's option A. And here's option B. 30% of Americans have started to make an effort to limit their meat consumption. What do you think, A or B? So if you're like me and the dozen or so people I've informally asked this question, you chose option B, the one that added, have begun to. It just seems much friendlier and, well, more convincing. But why? Today's guest, Greg Sparkman, PhD, ran this experiment to test the idea of dynamic norms. That is, the concept that what's considered normal and acceptable can change. And Sparkman and his mentor, Greg Walton, who's last week's podcast guest, hypothesized that because change is hard, if you see that people are changing, that would indicate to you that there's a good reason for it. And also, they sense that one of the things that stops people from changing and adopting new habits, behavior, and ideas is just defensiveness at being late to the party. That is, if I go plant-based first, you can just dismiss me as a weirdo. 
But if I go plant-based and you follow, then my status has to go up relative to yours because I got there first. I was smarter. So all things being equal, you'd rather dig in your heels and convince yourself that going plant-based is just weird or stupid. So when people are told that 30% of the population is already doing something smart or virtuous, they bristle, they resist, they shut down because they're not on that train. They've missed the boat. By contrast, when people are told that 30% of the population is just starting to do something, they get intrigued. If it's just starting, after all, they can get in on the ground floor. They can be an early adopter, a maven, to borrow a Malcolm Gladwell term that he borrowed from my grandmother. They can be a key influencer. Plus, the fact that people are changing suggests good reason to join them. So what was the answer in Sparkman's restaurant study? The control group who weren't given either, 20% ordered a meatless lunch. In the group who was told option A, 17% chose a meatless lunch, which statistically is the same as 20. But here's the kicker. Those who were given option B, the have begun to option, 34% went meatless. 17% to 34%, that is a neat doubling. So basically adding the phrase have started to doubled the effectiveness of the message in changing behavior. And that is a lesson for all of us who are trying to bring about dynamic change in the world. So I'm delighted to share this conversation with Greg Sparkman with you. And before we get to it, let's talk about a teeny bit of business. And the business is all WellStart Health related. Uh, the WellStart Health Big Change Program begins May 14th. If you want to find out about the Big Change Program, the, the basics are at bigchangeprogram.com. To find out about the Big Change Program, in, in essence, if not in actual detail, since we have merged with WellStart Health, you can read about it at bigchangeprogram.com, and you can also get a free test drive. If you're ready to sign up, you go to wellstarthealth.com program. wellstarthealth.com program. You read down, and at the bottom there's an apply button, and you apply, and we probably accept you. And the program starts May 14th. It goes for 12 weeks for the intensive and then an additional 40 weeks, so a whole year uh, with support and community. So if you're interested in making that big change in losing weight and dropping your meds in getting happy and healthy and fit and lean and all that good stuff, definitely go to bigchangeprogram.com and check out the testimonials and see what it's like for people so you can decide if this is going to be a good fit for you. Second thing is, I've mentioned this a couple of times, we are looking for health coaches as we expand. So if you would like to find out more, just drop me a line, Howard at wellstarthealth.com. We'll be starting a coach training program um, probably this month. It's, uh, it's, gonna, it's coming up soon because we're growing and I can't do it all and Josh can't do it all. So again, Howard at Wellstart Health if you're interested in that. All right, let's talk about dynamic norms. Without further ado, Greg Sparkman, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi. So I want to talk to you about your your research on uh, norm erosion, and I guess first we need to uh, for for people who are not familiar with uh, with this field in the social sciences, tell what, what's the question that that you're trying to answer in this in this work. So what we're looking at is a variety of problems uh, that face sustainability that are very difficult to change because the current norms are problematic. Um, 
And this kind of comes from a background in research that shows that when something has the status of being a norm, when most people do it and most people think it's a good idea, uh, that this sends strong signals to everyone else. This sends signals that really perpetuate that norm, that that's a good idea, that it's effective, that it's enjoyable, that there's nothing ethically wrong with it or especially dangerous. <clears throat> and so uh, one of the behaviors we looked at in this set of studies that met that criteria was meat consumption. Meat consumption is a behavior that is uh, a very salient norm. It's sort of echoed every time you look out into the world and you see what other people are eating. Uh, it's the defaults on restaurant menus. It's the archetype in the Norman Walkwell painting, you know, what have you. Okay. Um, so the question is how, how, you know, so, I mean, most people think of it like, how can we get people to buck that norm? Right. Just to, to be, you know, I, I have a plant-based podcast and there's a lot of people who talk about when they started making their change, how it felt like they were going up against everything, that they were rejecting their culture, their family. They didn't know what to put on their plate anymore. But you're, you're taking a kind of a different approach rather than telling people to be, you know, rocks of Gibraltar against the, the raging tide of, of the norm um, to see what can be done about the norm itself. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so just knowing that it's the norm is just like a big part of understanding the context before we move in and try to figure out some kind of intervention to help change that behavior. Um, and, and you're right that a lot of people do feel like they're going up against a lot and they are, uh, given the norm status. Um, and so we were curious, yeah, what are some ways that you can employ to, um, help make that less of a problem? And one thing that we were thinking about in the context of norms, uh, and meat consumption is that, as I mentioned, a lot of things. Um, in terms of defaults, in terms of what we call descriptive norms that um, are like the prevalence of some behavior and prescriptive norms in terms of commonly shared beliefs. Um, you know, since those were all uh, malaligned to get people to reduce meat consumption, we were trying to figure out, well, what, what maybe is a, one good aspect here? And we noticed that there was a trend in the U.S. such that meat consumption had dropped significantly um, from about 2007 to present. And we thought, Maybe this is an aspect of norms that is also influential. And people really hadn't asked that question before within the field of psychology. Meaning, meaning that the, the trend line is just as important as what, the, what the, uh, sort of the, the global weight of the norm is? Yeah, that people might, we already know that people really care about where the norm's at currently, but maybe they also care where is it going. Maybe that also carries some kind of influence, and maybe that could be helpful in cases where there's positive change over time. Sure. So, um, how did you? Th I'm curious how, how you because I love the study and I love the way there you know, there's, there's four different studies in the in the paper that I read. Um, did you start like just talking to people, like having the conversation to test it out before you you know spent money on Mechanical Turk and and went through IRB and all that? Like how how did you start playing with the idea? that where the norm is going might be influential as well as well as where it is statically. Well, um, we did chat with some people. I think one of the first things we do uh, often in social sciences is to think, well, somebody's done something probably kind of similar to this. So you always dig into the literature as well. Um, and, you know, when we when we did that, um, we found a lot on uh, prior work in social influence that looked at bandwagon effects, <clears throat> which showed that you know, um, that when a norm becomes slightly more popular, that there's, 
a greater number of people who are willing to conform to it. And then after they conform, the norm is, again, slightly more popular. And so there's another, now a greater number of people who are willing to conform to it. And that this process dynamically produces uh, greater conformity over time. But a lot of that research really just assumed that people were just kind of reacting to what the norm was presently and that they didn't really register that it was going in a certain direction. And, and we thought this is certainly influential. People, people care about the direction the norms are moving over time. And so, yeah, we, uh, you know, we often bounce ideas off of our fellow colleagues in the lab and people kind of share this intuition that that's probably important to see that people change or know people are changing. And um, actually, you know, MTurk's not too pricey. So I think we laid down a couple of pilot studies right away in this case. Okay, so what, what, what's, what did the studies look like? What did you ask people and what were you trying to figure out? Um, let's see, I think the first pilot studies we had, uh, we asked people just, um, we gave them either information about where the norm was at. In this case, we told them that about 30% uh, of people made some effort to limit how much meat they ate. So right now, like a minority of people do this, um, essentially. And then we asked them uh, to, after that, express how interested they were in reducing their meat consumption personally. And then in the other condition, we asked, we told people that um, that a number of people had changed, and then we were curious as to whether they were interested in reducing their meat consumption. Um, and what we found was that, generally speaking, people who had learned about that change were uh, significantly more interested in reducing their meat consumption personally. And and then you tested that out in the in an actual cafeteria line, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a few more studies in between those two points to try to understand some more about the like, what was it about learning about this change that was more okay, influential? Yeah, so help, help, help me understand those, because I, I have to admit, I, I read through the middle studies and I, I got kind of turned around by the uh, statistical stuff. So help, help me. You had that first one that um, that the trend line seemed to make people more willing to consider eating less meat. Mm -hmm. What did you look at in the in those intermediate studies? Well, we were really curious why. Why was it that learning about this change was more influential than just learning where the current norm was? And um, and so we had, we had some ideas that we wanted to test out. Uh, one was that we thought maybe people actually kind of envision um, the direction the norm is heading and they actually kind of picture what the future is going to be like. So maybe when people hear that something's changing, they think, oh, in the future, maybe that norm will be different. So in this case, maybe meat consumption won't be the predominant way people do things. Maybe it won't be the norm to eat meat, uh, you know, two or three times a day. <clears throat> and so one of the questions we tucked into um, one of the follow-up surveys was, um, you know, do you think in the future um, that many people will be doing this, that many people are making an effort to eat less meat? <clears throat> and um, another question we asked uh, was getting at this idea that we thought, that when people changed, it conveyed that there'd be some reason for change. That when someone's on some trajectory or course and then they alter course, that you assume that there'd be something, some reason that they did so. Whereas if people just kind of stay course, you don't really think that there was necessarily anything important about that. So we thought people kind of had this lay theory that change wasn't easy and that if someone changes, it might signal something or something of somewhat importance. And so we also asked people a question about prescriptive norms. We asked people, do you think people in general feel like this is kind of an important issue? Um, and that it's, uh, there's a significant reason to reduce one's meat consumption um, and that others are making some effort in order to do this because we thought that change would primarily also convey that people were making some kind of an effort. And then what we saw uh, as a result of those two studies was that, uh, yeah, people think that both the norm in the future might be different, 
um, and that more people will be making this effort and sort of essentially that the trend they're seeing now will continue. And also that um, people considered uh, when they learned about change, they thought other people were actually putting in a decent amount of effort probably in order to make that change. And then because of that effort, they also believed that people considered this to be somewhat or fairly important. So what we had were these two kind of uh, mechanism stories. One where seeing a bunch of people change and, and reduce their meat consumption um, led them to think that maybe in the norm uh, in the future will be different, that trend's going to continue. And the other is that, uh, wow, they must be putting in a little bit of effort. They must think this is kind of important. Um, and that also showed some influence on their behavior. So both of those factors, in this case, accounted for the effect. Um, gotcha. Like, Mm -hmm. are, are there other factors you're still considering? Yeah, actually, there's quite a few. Um, not so much in the meat consumption domain, but in other spaces. But um, we actually think that there's a lot of really influential inferences that come about when you learn that people are changing. Um, so, for instance, one is that it conveys that change is possible. Uh, that's, a, that's a large barrier in many cases to change is thinking like, well, I don't really know if I could do that. Um, but once you see many people change, it's a, it kind of gives you social proof that, well, seems like it's not too hard, perhaps. Um, and in other contexts, as I mentioned, people might not think that something is important enough to change for, but seeing a bunch of people change might suggest that one should reconsider. And then finally, uh, we're also looking at how, um, when it comes to matters of identity, uh, that people um, in, in social psychology, we know people are really motivated to maintain identities that they have, whether it be like social identities, like their gender, or their religion, or other things like that, or their political identities, um, or personal identities, like I am a reasonable person, I don't take risks, I, whatever those qualities are about oneself that one espouses to continue to hold. People are motivated to maintain these identities by choosing to accept certain behaviors and reject other behaviors that sort of are associated with that identity or not associated with that identity. And this kind of identity compatibility is sort of a big determinant in deciding what behaviors will be willing to do or not willing to do. And we had the idea that maybe when you see many people change, it, it sort of erodes the sense that there's strict categories of people who do this behavior and don't do this behavior. And it makes it seem normal that a lot of people who don't do the behavior start. Um, so when you see people change, they're necessarily kind of like you in that they didn't do that behavior before. And so they highlight a path for how people like you can start to do that behavior. Uh, so we think that these all these processes are kind of activated when you like see people change. We think that social change is like a strong signal mm -hmm. um, and can convey all these kinds of inferences which are able to um, allow people to reconsider whatever kind of barriers, psychological barriers they presume stood in the way, whether they be about ability, whether they be about if something's important or not, and whether they be about if some new behavior is compatible with the kind of person I am, somebody who doesn't do that behavior currently. Gotcha. So I want, I want to explore some of those, but first let's let's get the uh, the cafeteria study on the table for people. So what, yeah, what, yeah. Did, what did you do there? <clears throat> so we went to a local cafe, and um, we wanted to see, uh, you know, could this translate into behavioral change? We'd already seen that there was promising results um, from national samples on MTurk in terms of um, people's uh, behavioral intentions, and we just wanted to see like. Hopefully, you know, this translates to behavior, too. Um, it's not just some, like, kind of funny artifact that people really want to say they're willing to do it but don't actually change. Um, and I should also mention, I guess, really briefly, too, that that, that result was something that um, was not moderated by gender, age, or political orientation, meaning that the effect was just as strong if you were a man or a woman, if you were old or young, if you were liberal or conservative. 
which we found very positive because it seemed like it was robust to lots of parts of the population of the U.S. So anyways, back to the cafe or cafeteria study, or sorry, uh, cafe study. Uh, so in that one, we gave people uh, different surveys while they waited in line. There's a cafe nearby called Bites Cafe, um, and a lot of staff and faculty from computer science go there. It's sort of like their hotspot. And, um, and so what we did was uh, we set up a little uh, sandwich board sign that advertised people would get five bucks off lunch if they took this survey. And then it took two minutes, and you could take it while you were in line. Um, and so the line is decently long at Bites Cafe, and so we knew that people would perhaps be excited to do this. Um, and so people would come over and they'd ask to do the survey. And we, we stationed it such that people would start the survey and complete the survey shortly before getting to the menu stand uh, of the cafe. And we did this during lunch hours. And, um, and so people got a survey and they essentially got handed one of three surveys that had been sort of randomly stacked. Um, and so one of the surveys, again, emphasized this static aspect of the norm, just where the norm's at right now. And it mentioned a similar factoid as our online surveys, that about 30% of people made some effort to reduce their meat consumption. Um, and we asked them, you know, why do you think that is? And they got to, like, write out why they thought it was. And then in another version of the survey, they got the dynamic norm information that um, in recent years many people had changed um, and, they were, and had begun to limit how much meat they ate. And they were asked why they thought that was. And they got to write it out. And then as a control group, we gave them um, information that people had made some effort recently to reduce their uh, Facebook consumption, which we thought was like a, uh, just another information about something changing over time. And we wanted that as a control group. Um, just in case thinking about anything changing over time made people more health conscious or something like that. Um, and so then um, everybody got, for completing the survey, they got a little coupon. And, they were said, and we told them, thank you so much for participating. Um, and then they proceeded uh, down the line. And then unbeknownst to them, the coupon had a trackable ID number on it. So we could tell which condition they were in. And then we could track what, each what people in each condition ordered um, shortly thereafter. Because at the end of the day, we had to pick up the receipts uh, stapled to the coupons to reimburse the company. So uh, when we looked at that, we saw that there was kind of a baseline of about 17% in the static norm, 20% in the control. Those two were kind of all within the range of chance. Um, but then the dynamic norm, it jumped up from that 17% to 34%. So essentially, we doubled the number of people who decided to get a uh, meatless lunch that day, uh, from about one in six to one in three people. Wow. And, and this was, I read it was pretty robust in that you had 70% of the people online said yes, right? So there wasn't some clear selection bias going on. Oh, yeah, in terms of the people, yeah. So what we saw was that a bulk of people who came through felt like five bucks off lunch for a two-minute survey made sense and did it. So we got a decent chunk of the folks there. Did you see a difference in explanations between people who were talking, given the static or the dynamic? A little bit, yeah. I mean, uh, in, in some cases, people on the static norm uh, might mention a little bit more about like, oh, um, some people don't eat meat for ethical reasons. Um, and things like that. But by and large, the the main response in both groups was like, oh, they probably do it for health reasons. Um, mm. But but for some reason, it's only when people change that they started to think about personal change. It's only when others change that they started to think like, wow, maybe maybe that uh, as our prior research had shown, it suggested they thought like, wow, maybe the norm in the future will be different. 
And maybe this is actually kind of an important thing. People are willing to change for it. It's not some like idiosyncratic thing that some individual does. It's like something that or has done for a long time and always will do. It's just something that, you know, one should consider changing for. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious about your the choice of referent group. So you, you talked about just Americans. Yeah. Um, have you thought about like whether whether other referent groups like if it was, you know, Stanford faculty or computer scientists or, you know, I don't know, Golden State Warriors fans, if, if there if there might be power in certain referent groups as opposed to others. Yeah. And I should say, actually, when we um, moved to the, the cafe setting, uh, we we did change the message a tiny bit. We also said that um, we've seen this trend in the U.S. Um, and we've also seen it in Stanford. We kind of we kind of wanted to touch both bases just in case one was more influential than the other. Um, and we, we wanted people to feel like this is something that was true of the locale they were in as well as the broader trend of the country. Um, and, and yeah, there's literature showing that when, when people feel like the norm statements you're giving them are more about people like them, that those norm statements are going to be more influential. Uh, they've, they've shown this in a variety of ways so far. Because I'm thinking of like, I think it was Cialdini's um, hotel sign studies to get people to like reuse their towels. Yeah, right. yeah. Something and, like, even something as silly as people in this room have recycled their towels. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes even arbitrary aspects of how some, of ways you can be similar to somebody might kind of trigger people to think about uh, think about that norm statement in a more um, serious way. Yeah, in that case, I always wondered too if it was when they're in your own room. Is it something about do you have an identity about that room, or maybe it's just that like that statement makes you really contrast some hypothetical person's behavior to your own behavior. And so like having that contrast be more visible or salient to you might be causing that too. But generally speaking, people do find that um, the more similar you feel about the people whom you're learning about, uh, the more likely the norm statement is to be influential. And that's part of the reason we like dynamic norms too, is because in the classic norms problem, um, you had like you know some majority, and you said, "Hey, a majority of people do this. You ought to do this." And that was the appeal that people thought about for um, some kind of a social norm feedback intervention. And we always thought that like that's I can see why that would be influential in a lot of cases. But you're also just telling people like, "Hey, you're different. Most people do this, and you don't." Um, and given that we know that norms are more influential when they're about people like you, it makes more sense that you want some message that conveyed that like you know, these people also didn't do this before, like you, to, to make that similarity uh, stand out more. Right. Like I shared this, um, <clears throat> this research with, with two people. So I was trying mm -hmm. to figure out from my own perspective, like why, why I think this is so powerful. And also that as soon as um, Greg Walton started telling me about this, it, t it made total sense. And, I, you know, I come from a place where I'm, I'm part of a, you know, a fairly activist pro plant eating <laughs> movement yeah. and all of us have the experience of going to a restaurant or sitting down at a, at a meal with with family or friends mm -hmm. not saying anything just eating the salad and the vegetables not ordering the meat and mm -hmm. having people freak out at us like yeah. we've we yeah. like we've just you know stabbed their mother mm -hmm. and so I was, you know i was wondering is is some of this about reducing people's um, cognitive dissonance around that the, yeah, they know it's healthy. They know it's better for the environment. They know it's more ethical, but they're not doing it. So if I just, if you, if you just go and say, Hey, this is a bunch of people who are doing something better than you, that you'll get, you'll get a negative reaction as opposed to yeah. help either helping them 
save face because now they can be an early adopter or mm-hmm. um or or the you know you understand what i'm asking yeah no i think you're touching on one of the reasons why um prior norms interventions have have like a particular kind of hang up which is that you know it makes it puts people on the defensive uh, entirely and um, and one of the literatures you're kind of referencing here is something we call do-gooder derogation. I don't know if that's something you've talked about before or not. I'm happy to uh, mention a little bit about it if that's helpful. Yeah, please. Yeah, so do-gooder derogation, uh, one of the domains it was originally researched in was meat consumption, looking at how people get really angry at vegetarians. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the idea is that um, this comes from a broader theory of what's called self-affirmation. Uh, that people want to maintain a view of themselves that's highly positive. They think that they're ethical, that they're hardworking, that they're contributors to society, that they're really reasonable and competent, moral, etc. And when they come into contact with information that violates that idea, uh, they want to resist that information. They want to reject it. Um, and they've shown that when you ask people to change some behavior, like for instance, health behaviors, like you say, hey, smoking's not that good for you, or drinking coffee's not good for you, people really resist that information because they don't want to see themselves or their past actions as being incompetent or in some other way uh, bad. Mm. Um, And for meat consumption, uh, some of the work they've shown is that people don't even need to talk about it. It's not like someone has to say, oh, you ought to do this or you're bad for doing this. People can, it's enough for people just to anticipate that that person would disapprove of their behavior. Um, like that's sufficient. Like they don't have to actually act there or say anything or, or, you know, be on a high horse of any, of any kind. Um, it's, it's just enough to have them go against the norm. Um, and it might put people on the defensive, like that's it. Um, some of that work, by the way, suggests that what you should really do is really affirm other people, uh, just to remind them that they have other qualities that are worth thinking about that they can draw value from. Like they can be honest, they can be charitable, you know, they can be good friends all these kinds of things. Because in that moment, you're just focused on that one behavior. You're just focused on meat consumption and how this other person doesn't do it and you do. And that's really where your attention's at and that's really where all your self-value is currently balanced on. And if you remind people that there's all these other kinds of good qualities that they have, they're actually much more willing to accept this kind of criticism. Um, and they don't they don't reject do-gooders in that case. In fact, they sometimes like them even more. Huh. Uh, so that's, that's one kind of uh, positive idea there. Uh, and we think that seeing people change uh, I didn't mention this mechanism because it's something that we're still working on and it's in the really early stages. But we think it does also help from a dissonance standpoint. We think that um, seeing many people change conveys that your prior actions weren't just some signal of uh, prior fault, that it's actually maybe a signal of something broader that's going on, that there's some kind of societal change. And maybe there's reasons that are bigger than you for why you did that behavior. It's not like you chose it because you know you were foolish or hadn't thought about it. It was just that a lot of people did that and people didn't know. Um, and that's like a very reasonable, uh, very reasonable thing. And now that many people are changing, perhaps there is good reason. Maybe something we learned was new. Um, and maybe this is just a aspect of social progress. Uh, that's interesting because I've just, I just saw a presentation that I found very compelling, um, by a a doctor, uh, Michael Greger. And the, the first part of his presentation was about the history of cigarette smoking and how doctors, were promoting it or or not you know the uh, american medical association was not um calling it into question even when there had been something like six or seven thousand published studies showing its health effects and yeah. i'm starting to realize like that was to kind of give people who are eating meat this this feeling of being being part of a vanguard and that 
look, we no nobody, you know, you you've been lied to. Like it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think when people if they're to stop and consider that, you know, their behaviors are kind of a product of this cultural momentum, like a lot of the reason they eat what they eat is because of how crazy available it is, because of traditions that they have, because of um, you know, subsidies to the agriculture industry, like all these things that they have um, to an extent, like not, not too much control over. Um, and they've arrived. They've arrived here with the kind of diet they have now because of like all of these things pointing them in that direction. Um, and yet in the moment, people attribute it to their own decisions because they feel like, you know, that they're the ones who are in control all the time. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, not very visible how people are influenced by all those other sources. But once you look like globally, you see like, oh, clearly how much meat people eat is determined by all kinds of social factors and um, infrastructural factors and, you know, policy factors and all these things. Right. But then you also get into this issue of, um, I think it was uh, P.T. Barnum, maybe, who said it's easier to fool someone than to convince them that, that, that they've been fooled. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. So people, people might resist the idea that, um, that their actions are the consequence of all these structural things. That's, that's totally the case. Um, and, um, and we're trying to, you know, with the dynamic norms, we're trying to bypass that, essentially, most of that conversation. We're just saying that a lot of people are starting. And that, that means that, like, you know, the, uh, the ship hasn't sailed yet. You know, it's, it's not like you've already messed up. Um, mm. It's like people are just, people are beginning to. And you could begin to, too. Um, it doesn't really emphasize the fact that you haven't begun yet. Uh, or anything like that, and like shame on you for not having done so. It's just like, oh, a lot of people are starting to change, and it's sort of just an invitation, just sitting there. It's not not too threatening, I don't think. Yeah, it's it, it weird. It, it reminds me of that uh, yogurt punch card study, where you know what I'm talking about. Where, where uh, I'm not sure. Which, where yeah, people were given uh, a yogurt punch card, and um, one of them had uh, eight punches for a free yogurt, and the other had ten punches, but two of them were already punched. And there was like oh, yeah. hugely different, <laughs> like the people who already felt like they were 20% there were uh, much more likely to, 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 to get the whole card filled out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that it, yeah, it presents it as like, like you could be, you can see yourself as like in the doorway and have known that many people have passed through it already. Uh, rather than just learning that like, oh, like many people do this, like kind of makes it seem like, you, you know, you by contrast don't, and presumably there's reasons why you don't. And you might even start elaborating on, um, like why it is that you haven't made this change, um, or why you haven't done this before. And all these other people have been doing it for a long, long time. So it's nice to know that it's like a recent phenomenon because it kind of, yeah, it leaves that door open for you. Right. So, um, I know it's early work, um, but what, what, do, what do you think about in terms of implications for either for individuals, for for people who want to be do-gooders without pissing everybody else off, or for policy? Um, I think that uh, in people's day-to-day -day lives, when they are interacting with people in, in the context of meat consumption specifically, um, that, yeah, it's really important to make sure people feel sort of validated and um, like they're valued um, because you're about to draw attention to something that's you know, complex and has moral implications or has competence implications if you're concerned about health. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, you know, it's important to take it easy, I think, when we come to approaching others, maybe to even look for signs of openness or curiosity before stepping forward. Um, and <clears throat> and uh, it's important to make it feel like you haven't always done this, uh, to, to give the image that you too 
uh, you know, ate tons of meat before and loved it. Um, but I mean, that, that's certainly been the case for me. Like I, I think ribs were probably my favorite food until I was 19. Uh, and, and they're amazing. Uh, and I think, I think saying that to somebody who eats meat has this kind of effect of like legitimizing the, the fact that they do enjoy that behavior. Um, and then to say like, yeah, and then I kind of realized there's a lot of reasons, uh, at least for my values that were important to change. Um, and so I drastically cut down how much meat I ate. And I think that kind of a story, um, is one that kind of touches on a lot of nice psychological bases, can make people feel uh, not very threatened, that you kind of understand where they're coming from or sympathize, um, that you too were in this camp of people who didn't do this before. Um, and then at some point you just kind of decided that maybe it was a good idea to change. Um, and, and that that change was possible and that it was for people who, in this case, really liked ribs before, you know, <laughs> uh, what have you. Um, and I think that can, I think that could do wonders in terms of, uh, people's day-to-day -day communications with each other. Um, on the broader scale, uh, we were very excited about the findings from the cafe study, uh, seeing that number jump up, uh, to like double what it was before. And we were curious, all right, well, you know, what can we do with this? How can we actually turn this into some kind of campaign of change? And it wasn't obvious because we had relied on a survey and it's not that feasible to survey everybody before they order food. Uh, and so our question was, okay, well, uh, you know, w what can we do to translate this into something more readily scalable? And we're currently working on that project now, and we're calling that the Dynamic Norms Menu Project. And what we're doing is trying to tie in the norm information straight into restaurant menus. Um, menus are great as a delivery channel because you give people information right at the point of decision making. Um, so it sort of mirrors that idea that we deliver information right before people ordered food. Um, and the biggest challenge is that people don't engage with menus the same way you do with a survey because you're getting paid for your time and attention to like answer some questions and, and reflect and think about things. And so one of the challenges is how do you put a message into a menu that's sufficiently brief so that people will read it and still potent enough that they start thinking about all these things like, huh, I wonder why all these people changed. Mm. And so we've, we've currently been researching that, like how to best do that. And I think it's uh, non-trivial to translate something from a interactive um, survey where everyone has their attention and eyes on something to a menu context where people are busy, they might be talking to friends, they might be on their phone, and they get to the front of the line and they have to hurriedly make a decision. Uh, it's a really different kind of moment in some sense, even though it's only, in our case, literally like two minutes before that other event. Um, it's psychologically very different. Uh, mm. And so now we're, we're researching like how to translate that and uh, working with different kinds of corporate partners to um, implement and design and test different ways you can tell consumers in menus um, that certain dishes are rising in popularity or that that restaurant has noticed a trend where some of their plant-based dishes have been ordered more frequently in the past than they have in the past um, and that they've seen these changes in their consumer base. Yeah, um, right. I'm, I'm picturing sort of the, you know, the, the difference between Amazon bestsellers and trending now. Yeah, that would be one kind of instantiation of the idea for sure. Um, and th those are different things like, um, and it's not, you know, in menus, I think too, it's fortunate for us in menus. It's, it's fairly normal to give some norm information. Like it's really common to say like, here's our most popular dishes. Um, and so it might not be that strange to say, here are the dishes that we've seen are like rising the most in popularity. That might not be too weird for people to see. Uh-huh. Right. I'm, I'm also, I guess I'm a little bit <clears throat> worried about since this seems like it's such a powerful effect, mm -hmm. um, that people are going to just make up statistics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we live in a world in which that's seemingly happening more and more. Um, 
Any thoughts on the ethics of uh, like sure, lying yeah. in, the, in, the, in the interest of greater good? Yeah. From a research standpoint, we try to make sure that uh, we give people norm information uh, that's true. And so we use like national polling data, other kinds of data we can get our hands on. Um, and part of that is for an ethics reason. And part of that is because we think believability is a huge deal here. Like when it comes to marketing contexts or other real world contexts, people are, you know, generally on the defensive and they try to be critical consumers of the information they're being fed. And it's hard. It's not always easy for them to do so. And they might not even know when something's an advertisement when something's not now with all these kind of like viral ad campaigns and things like that. Um, but uh, we think believability is a big deal. Um, and so before we ran our studies, we also we looked at the numbers um, from a variety of surveys on meat consumption. And they sort of had this range um, from in between like uh, 30 and 40 percent of people reporting um, in different kind of medical surveys and national surveys that they made some effort to eat less meat. And um, and so we asked people on MTurk to tell us what they thought. Um, and so we got a number that most people believe to be true. Um, that was a conjunction of those two statistics, basically. Mm. Um, they kind of lined up where there's like a decent overlap where you could pick some numbers there. And um, and so when we go into these contexts, uh, we want to make sure that the message doesn't seem hard to believe. Um, and the other thing I was going to say about that is if you put up a statistic that's made up, people may or may not believe it. Um, and I think that I think that change over time is something that's harder to perceive. So I think that there is more flexibility in how it's presented, and people probably could uh, be sort of more gullible towards different kinds of factoids about it. Like if I told you, like, oh, meat consumption was dropping, but in the last six years, it's actually started rising again. Like someone might believe that. It'd be hard to kind of know. Yeah. Um, unless you've like been firsthand reading some of the articles about it. Uh, in fact, I think there was a slight increase from. Uh, 2017 over 2016 and uh, you see a lot of people who are in the meat industry um, or currently in the federal government saying like oh yeah meat consumption is definitely going to go back up um, and I think they're just probably guessing like I don't <laughs> I think that they are just hopeful about it because that's that's like their uh, industry um, so you know there's and, and we wonder about this too like when we do this research if someone happens to read one of the articles that said like meat consumption is on the rise but really it's only been on the rise for like a year uh, and it's been like on a steady decline for like 12 years um, or more than that, like, you know, if, like, if they're going to recognize that or not. Um, that's the other thing too about statistics with time is that they're even trickier than regular ones, I think. Cause I can say like something's gone down and if I don't mention like over what period of time I'm talking about, it's true that over some period of time it has gone down, like just because there's noise, like everything kind of bobs up and down a little bit all the time. So, like <laughs> certainly over some time period it went down. I guess they went up and that's also true. At some point it went up. Like I, I don't specify the time frame. The factoid is kind of hollow and could be fitted to some piece of data. Um, so when we when we work with restaurants, um, what we do is we take a look at their data and we try to think about what do people what do people consider to be a meaningful time frame. And for us, usually it's like something that happened in the last maybe like five years, maybe three years, maybe one year. Like those are time frames people are probably thinking about when they hear these kinds of facts. So like, oh, we've noticed our consumers have shifted their ordering behavior. They're probably picturing some time frame in between one and five years. That's our guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so we look at the data there to see what trends we notice. And then, um, as I mentioned, there's this kind of broader trend that's been going on for a bit more than a decade, where overall there's been a hefty decline in meat consumption, um, about a little more than 10%. And so, um, so it's important to us to uh, one, make sure we can find something in the data that corroborates the story, and two, match the broader national trend. 
So that's kind of like our ethical standpoint. We want both the sort of letter of the law or the letter of the statistic in this case, like there had been this decline uh, to be true within some portion of the data that we're looking at. And then also we want the sort of spirit of it that like, yeah, and generally speaking, a lot of people are in fact reducing mutant consumption. Um, so that's that's sort of our, uh, that's our go-to. And, yeah. and like I said, part of that's not just uh, from ethical standpoint, but because we think it's important to be true to those statistics sure. uh, for believability. Sure. That shouldn't be effective if people don't believe it. It'll be interesting when the, when the meat industry discovers that this is a an influential way to talk to people, yep. because we've seen that you know in the in the uh, nutrition arena where we have this overwhelming evidence that that meat consumption is deleterious, and now we have all these you know reductionist individual studies where you know they they give people chicken instead of you know lard and they find some slight improvement. But, uh, yeah. It's. Uh, once some, once they once they start packing their own cannons, it's going to be good, interesting. Yeah, but you know what? There's um, they they've already they don't know necessarily about dynamic norms, but they do know. Uh, well, I think I think people share the intuition that if you like say that this is the direction things are moving, that that probably is influential. So I think they have a not a sign, not like an empirical, but like a lay intuition. Like, oh yeah, that that probably is a thing. And what's amazing is that um, some major players in the industry aren't aren't terrified by this. They're actually adapting to it. That, that's like an amazing thing. So like Tyson Foods, right? Like the largest meat marketer in the United States um, went on an interview with like Fox Business and the title of that interview with Fox Business and the CEO of Tyson Foods was the future of food might be meatless. I think Fox News chose that because they wanted to be controversial and scary and have people go like, dear God, like or something like that probably. <laughs> Um, but what it does is like it says in the title that like maybe that's the direction norms are moving. And in the article, it's it's like actually a more cool and uh, reserved conversation where the CEO says, yeah, we've noticed that plant-based at a larger rate than our meat-based proteins. I think that trend is going to continue. And so we've, we've reconceptualized our company as a protein company rather than a meat company. And we're investing more in and selling more protein-based products that are plant-based. Um, and that like... If that's coming from the CEO of Tyson Foods, like that's a pretty good sign. Mm. And, I, and I think the idea, too, is that dynamic norms aren't just something we use to knock around individual behavior or consumer behavior on a small scale. Um, when we approach restaurants, for instance, and we talk to them, we let them know that, like, yeah, we're seeing a lot of restaurants trying to take interest in this. We're conveying to them something about norms changing. Um, and then we mention things like that Tyson article. And we mention other things. And they go, yeah, I've noticed that, too. And they believe that trend is true. And they start to consider changing their own behavior and participating in our project, for instance. Um, I think other people in the meat industry, uh, at least those who have some capacity to change, uh, are going to see this and think like, "Oh, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should hedge my bets and invest a little bit in both mm -hmm. plant-based and, and uh, animal-based protein." Um, and uh, that's a that's a great thing, right? To the extent that we can portray that, I think there's some people in the meat industry for whom like change is not possible like they are in, like infrastructurally just situated and they can't move and for them presumably they are going to push back and they're going to push back as hard as they can uh, but knowing that there are major players out there uh, in the industry that are willing to see this change happen and happy to capitalize on it means that there might be fewer barriers uh, than one might expect for this awesome well this is a uh, a very positive, hopeful uh, conclusion to, I think, what is a really powerful, positive direction of research. So I'm so grateful to uh, to you and to Greg Walton. And I guess there's, you have other collaborators as well working on this? 
Yeah, um, on the menu project, work with Elizabeth Waits, who uh, helps us in so many ways get these projects off the ground because there's so many, uh, you know, practical aspects and like collaborations with businesses and things that, you know, I'm a researcher, that's not really my forte. And so she certainly helps with that. Um, and then, you know, we rely on the, the Dweck Walton lab generally for our, a lot of our feedback and guidance when we're considering programs of change. So Carol Dweck, who does the growth mindset stuff and a lot of other wide scale interventions, uh, also gives us a lot of feedback. Great. So that's a, it's a, it's a great pedigree and, uh, it's such useful and interesting and beautiful work. So Greg Sparkman, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for the work you do and for taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you. So what'd you think of that? I kind of think this finding is one of the most fascinating ones in social science research in the last dozen years or so. It feels so powerful, such a simple little twist on our language that can invite people into the movement rather than making them feel already shut out. So I hope you'll share this with other people who are also advocating for good things, good change in the world. And uh, maybe together we can all join hands, use intelligence like this and all the other things that we know about how to get people to open their eyes and grow and adopt new habits and behaviors and attitudes. And we can really make a difference. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That would be just awesome. Um, got a new review today, which I would like to share with you. Okay, it's from uh, Plantastic Life, and the headline is Great Interviews. And Plantastic Life says, The Plant Yourself podcast is a must-listen for anyone interested in becoming better at life. Howard has interviewed an amazing list of incredibly diverse guests and has created a podcast that deserves a wide listening audience. Oh, amen. <laughs> An audience that includes those who eat a plant-based diet and those that don't. Howard's great interviewing skills bring out the best in his guests. Subjects are covered deeply and Howard asks questions that provoke interesting insights from his guests. Howard often clarifies and summarizes answers in ways that help listeners better understand complex concepts that the guest has shared. If you are looking for intelligent, thought-provoking, and often funny discussions, the Plant Yourself podcast is for you. Wow, thank you so much. I have to say that a lot of my clarification and summarization is actually for me to help me better understand the complex concepts. So I'm glad that uh, I'm not the only one who needs a little help um, in that area sometimes. So be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to Greg's work at plantyourself.com slash 268. And just above the links and below the show notes is a place where you can speak back. If you want to leave a comment, you can just uh, get that little program to commandeer your microphone and you could speak and uh, I will hear it. And if you want, I can uh, publish it so that other people can hear your responses as well. I could even put it into a future podcast as I'm, as I'm suddenly thinking to myself. So if you'd like to be part of that conversation in an audio way, just go to that uh, speak pipe and follow the instructions and leave a message on what you thought. If you're new to this show, you can catch up on 267 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com where you can also get The Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter. You can just sign up at the top right there. Another way to support the show is, of course, to share this and other episodes on social media with your friends and to become a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com. Just look on the right sidebar for the Patreon link, and that would be awesome because the show doesn't pay for itself. 
In gardening news, I don't really have any. I'm away this week. Uh, next week, I'm at a conference, a World Congress Healthcare Conference. It's been amazing. And it's what the best part about it, it's not at all plant-based. It's simply people in the healthcare industry who are sick and tired of the status quo. I met one person in the benefits industry who was saying she, she changed her model to reduce costs and help people get well because she was tired of hauling out the same pig and asking her clients, what color lipstick do you want? So it's a great description of the healthcare industry as it is now. And I've spent the last three days rubbing elbows with people who are trying to change it from all sorts of perspectives. And, you know, when we started um, speaking to people, they really didn't quite understand the plant-based aspect. Like, how, what does that have to do with cost containment? And we were trying to explain it and people really don't know right, that a plant-based diet and a healthy lifestyle can have that profound an impact, that it's far quicker and deeper and broader than, than the drugs that we're using right now. But then in the late afternoon on Sunday, CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey, got up and gave a keynote that really blew people's socks off. He's a fantastic speaker. If you ever get a chance to hear him give his plant-based message, he is a huge asset to this movement in the way he can, in a very matter-of-fact and authoritative way, help people see the power of a plant-based diet. So uh, good job, John Mackey. In running news, uh, did 14 miles yesterday at the conference. Did uh, six and a half on the treadmill in the morning and then actually went for a run with a, uh, a prospect, which was a great way to, to bond. We didn't sign anything, of course, but um, we got to know each other. And so, uh, so yay for running. And that brought me up to uh, 10 miles and then walked two miles to and two miles from a dinner place. Met up with uh, podcast friend Gio, uh, also my running buddy. And so 14 miles on a day when I also had a full day of conference. Yay. Okay, let's talk about thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use this song. Do you hear it? Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Such a beautiful melody, and you can find many more of Will's songs at his website, willridenauer.com. And now time to say thank you to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Tielson, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Ganofsky, David Isaac, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolman, Ovalia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Roger Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Ben and Gillis, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Bezo, Theo and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Bruthan Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lennis, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindeman, Roger Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Renzi, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly, Michia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Organs, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Theresa Kopelshell, Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rose, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm, Heather Gardiza, Tuzan Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lyle, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Arkoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild. Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, and Joshua Summermeyer for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this time. As always, be well, my friends.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harperson, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.